Well, I am so glad you're here. Uh, so glad to, to be together to get a chance to share these, uh, these moments together on a Sunday morning to worship from whatever uh, you have experienced this week. Uh, that we have this in common, that we have been doing our best to, to discern where God is leading each of us as individuals and be faithful to what God is asking us to do. And then we just get to come together on Sunday mornings and celebrate and sing together and learn together. And so if you have your Bibles, I uh, would love to have you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19. Uh, this is uh, the last week of this series, uh, Elijah. And this last week we're going to be looking at the life of Elijah. And next week we're going to start a new series called Glocal Mission, where we're looking at God's mission uh, across the street and around the world. And so excited about our teams who are going to Bolivia and to, uh, to Thailand and also just the rest of us who are called to live as missionaries here in the places we live, work, and play. So uh, talk more about that next week. But this morning, as we look at the last sort of glimpse of Elijah's life here, I want to start with this question about faith. How many of you would say, you know what, like, I have times in my life, or either right now, maybe this time in my life, where I could use more faith, uh, where faith maybe isn't coming as easily as it does in other seasons. Do you know what faith is? Faith, uh, according to Hebrews chapter 11, faith is the substance of things we hope for and the evidence of things we don't yet see. That's what faith is. It's a substance of things we hope for, we believe God for, and it's the evidence, like the, in, in, in your mind's eye, as you envision God's preferred vision of the future, you allow yourself to see it, like materialize, like this, this is where God is leading me. This is what God is wanting to do. And that's what faith is. It, it sees God's preferred vision of the future, the evidence of things hoped for, a substance of things not yet seen. And, and for some of us, I really think faith maybe comes easier than for others. I don't know how many of you, like, uh, I, ha- I have people in my life who I look at, and I think, man, I, they just get to faith so easily. It seems like they, they're never sort of caught in these cycles of just asking questions and, and d- doubting. Like, you, you sing the song, like, it says, God is never going to let me go. But, like, at some points it feels in my life like, man, I'm, it feels like I'm let go, like, if I'm really honest. And, and so sometimes we have these periods in our life where we struggle to find faith. And uh, if that's where you are this morning, I, I'm really glad you're here. Um, One of the things we're going to talk about in the life of Elijah is how when we're struggling to find faith, sometimes it's a a simple step of faithfulness that allows us to experience greater levels of faith. Like sometimes it's God has asked us to do something and we take one simple step of faithfulness, of obedience, and all of a sudden God meets us in that with the faith that we need to keep moving forward. So our faithfulness will sometimes allow God to pour out faith into our lives. So, uh, just to catch you up on the last couple of weeks, if, if you're, this is your first time here on where we've been with Elijah, um, and just so we're all on the same page, week one we talked about Elijah in the season of preparation. He was in a season of solitude where God called him to go into the desert, into the Kareth Ravine, to, be, to have things cut away from his life, to just have all the noise, to be silenced, to be alone with God. And we said, uh, Howard preached that sermon, and he said that God wanted to do more in Elijah because God wanted to do more through Elijah, and so it was his personal preparation. We have seasons like that in our lives. The second week, then, was this big showdown with 
uh, Elijah confronting all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, these false gods, lowercase g gods, that the Israelites had been seduced to worship. And they have this big showdown on Mount Carmel, and Elijah is there, and he wants to like just prove how foolish it is to worship these gods of stone and wood. And so he creates this uh, kind of competition, and of course the, the, the prophets of Baal and Asherah look really foolish. Baal can't you know, light this altar on fire, but Elijah just prays a simple prayer, and God shows up in this amazing way, and fire comes from heaven, and we don't know if it was like lightning or a fireball or what it was, but consumes this altar, and, and week two ended with all the people, all of Israel, having their hearts turned back to God, where they're, all of a sudden, they're falling on the ground, they're saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, which is Elijah's name, remember? Uh, that's what his name means, is the Lord is God. So, that was week two, Week three, it felt like for Elijah, you know, you're coming off this mountaintop experience where God shows up in such an amazing way, almost an unbelievable way, just crazy. And it feels like everything is going to be smooth sailing. You ever have those experiences where it's like, man, life is so good. God shows up. He met my needs and everything is going to be good. The problem for Elijah is that it wasn't all good. He came off the mountain and he meets this threat from the queen Jezebel, this wicked queen of Israel. And she tells him that she's going to kill him. She's going she's to take his life. And so he's terrified, and he runs again back into the desert. This time, not God, at God's leading for the season of solitude, but he's, he's afraid. So he runs into the Negev desert, and God comes to him there and gives him food and water uh, through an angel. He travels 40 days to Mount Sinai, where he's then he's up on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, and he's hiding in a cave. And God comes to him in a still, small voice, whispering to him to call him out of his cave, his isolation. So that's where we pick up on Elijah. Um, This fourth week, Elijah is, in his own mind, he is all alone. Elijah has, like this, what, what happened when Jezebel threatened him, is it sent him on this sort of downward spiral, this sort of like black hole of, of, of isolation, of just, I, I am all alone. It's only me. I, I'm the only one who cares about God. I'm the only one who's faithful to God, and I'm, I'm by myself in this whole thing. Do you know that you have these internal narratives that run in your mind all the time? Whatever it is. Like, you're having, a, a, there's, a, there's a constant flow of information going through your mind all the time. Uh, right now, like as, as we're all sitting here, we're all in the same space, you may be like listening, but you may be even having a conversation with me, like in your head, like, you know, sort of correcting things or whatever. Um, we can talk later, that's good. Um, but this, this happens, and, and it's important for us, like the Bible says, take every thought captive. Be aware of the things that you're thinking, because those things that we're thinking can control us. They can influence the way we live, and Elijah has this internal narrative that just keeps running in his head. And we find it in verses 10 and 14 of 1 Kings 19. So take a look. Either place, verse 10 or verse 14, it's the exact same thing. God speaks to him, and here's his internal narrative. Here's what he says. And what we'll notice is that there's truth to it, but there's also this lie that's embedded right in the middle of it. So take a look. So Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. This is true. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, True. They've torn down your altars. True. They've put your prophets to, the de- to death. This is true. With the sword. And I am the only one left. 
Not true. Not true. It's a lie. It's a lie that he's come to believe. I am the only one left. But then he says, and now they're trying to kill me too. True. So you have all this truth, but in the middle of it, there is this lie that he is believing that says, I am the only one left. It's all me. It's just me and God. And Elijah, the thing is, he knows it's not true because Obadiah, if you remember from uh, week one, um, actually it was week two, uh, Obadiah tells him there are a hundred prophets still alive in caves. This guy, this man of God, as Elijah's on the way back to confront the king, King Ahab, he meets this man of God, Obadiah, and he says, hey, there's, there's bad stuff going on. They've killed all the prophets except a hundred, and I've kept them alive. I've hidden them in caves, and I've kept them alive for these last three years with food and water. And so Elijah knows, I'm not alone. There are a hundred, at least a hundred of these faithful people of God. But his narrative tells him, it's only me. I am all alone. His despair is all-consuming. It won't allow him to see the truth, the bigger picture. Do you know what happens when we start to believe lies like that? Like when we start to believe the lie that says, I'm all alone, it's only me, it's just nobody really cares about me. Do you know that it becomes our truth? Like, it may not be true at all, but when we believe it and we start acting out of it, it becomes true. Uh, let me explain. I remember, I have this specific memory from high school. And so this is a long time ago. And uh, I remember, like, being in one of those, like, you know how you get into a bad zone sometimes? Like, we talked about despair last week. We were just like, you just sort of, like, everything kind of turns inward, and you're just kind of, you, you feel like, yeah, nobody really wants to be my friend. They just kind of, I'm excess baggage, and they're just kind of inviting me to things just because they should, and they don't want me to feel bad. But, like, nobody really wants to be my friend. Um, by the way, junior high, high school, those are rough periods of life. Like, tons of grace for you guys who are, like, in those places of just, like, figuring out life and friendships and all that stuff. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard part of the journey. Anyhow, so, um, so there's high school Eric, and he's invited to this, this gathering of friends, this party. And I was in this bad place and thinking nobody cared about me. And so I go into this, to my friend's house, and I'm going to prove that it's true, that nobody really wants me there. So I'm, I'm just kind of angry. I'm frustrated. I'm feeling sorry for myself. So I, like, I, I look angry and frustrated, and I sit down in sort of the farthest corner of the living room, away from everybody else. Because I'm there to prove that nobody really cares about me, because if they really care about me, they'll come and seek me out and say, hi, Eric, it's good to have you. Have you ever been in a place like that? I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning, because I don't think anybody really cares about me, and I'm going to prove it, because I'm going to stand in the middle of the fellowship center, and I'm just going to sort of stand there and wait until, I know this isn't actually what happens to any of us. We don't actually believe any of these lies. But of course, what happens is like when you're sitting in the corner with your arms crossed, looking like you're going to bite somebody's head off if they talk to you, they probably aren't going to talk to you. And it becomes true. And so this is what Elijah does. Um, he, he separates himself. He just, he starts believing he's all alone. And so he runs into the desert and it becomes true. He is all alone. He's hiding in a cave. Um, and so to, to just, to be aware of these narratives we believe. Now, God comes to him. Verse, uh, chapter uh, 1 Kings 19, verse 15, says, The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, I want you to anoint Ahazael, king over Aram, and also anoint uh, Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and also anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from, uh, by the way, we have this running joke between us that says, if we have another son, 
I have names that I like to suggest for Carmen. Shafat is one of those that I'd like to add to the list. My son's going to be a rapper. He's going to be awesome. Um, <laughs> PH, PH. And, uh, and so anoint, anoint Elisha to be a prophet to secede you, to come after you. So um, Elijah's there. He's feeling all sorry for himself. He's, he's arms folded in the corner. He's hiding in the cave. And God says, uh, Elijah, it's time to go. It's time to get up. Time to move. Time to, you have a job to do. Um, and I love this because when we're feeling like we're just sort of like, the, it's, it's all me. Like the only thing I can think about is me and my life and how I, I've failed and how nobody cares about me. God says, uh, it's time to move. You have gifts to use. You have a job to do. I've given you a purpose in the world. And sometimes the thing that we need more than anything else to get us out of that zone, to get us out of the cave we're hiding in, is to be reminded that we have meaningful things to do in the world. That we have gifts, that God has given you something to do and to be reminded to do it. So God says to him, go back the way you came. And uh, pulls him out of his sort of myopic thinking and he forces him to see people. God says, I'm going to make you bump into people to remind you so you know you're not alone. And he gives him four people that he's going to use his role as a prophet to anoint people, raise people up for God's purpose. Uh, Hazael, who's the king of Aram, this international leader. Jehu is the king of Israel. God had saw something in, in Jehu that he wanted to anoint him to be king over his people, and Elijah was going to be involved in it. The third person was Elisha, a, 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 a sort of a, somebody, a mentee, a, a disciple that Elijah was going to start investing his life in. You're going to see this guy. And then God says to him, and by the way, I have reserved 7,000 people in Israel who are faithful to me, who have never sort of bent their knee to worship Baal and have never kissed these gods. God says to him, look around, Elijah. Like a lot of people think that number 7,000 isn't as much specific as it is symbolic. Numbers have meaning in the Bible, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament. And so the, word, the number seven is a number of completeness, of fullness, or seven days in a week, you know, is a number of completeness. And 7,000 is this picture of complete abundance, Like God is saying, there are more than enough people to get the job done. Elisha, you are surrounded by faithful men and women who who are are partners with you in ministry, but you can't see them because you're so consumed with yourself. What would it be like if we had eyes of faith to look around and to realize that we are surrounded? We are surrounded by people, some of whom we know, many of whom we don't, who are just as passionate or more so about God's mission as we are. These people who are just just giving it up to God, uh, serving him, being faithful in whatever ways God has put in front of them, and we get to be a part of it. It's so easy to say, like, I'm serving, I'm sacrificing, I'm doing my thing, and I must be the only one who cares about this. I was a dishwasher growing up at a big restaurant that my dad managed. And like a couple thousand people come through the restaurant every day. And so I worked my way through, like, junior high and part of high school washing dishes. That is it. That's a bummer of a job. There's lots of free food that comes through um, that you get to eat, but it's, it's good. But uh, especially when you're really cheap. Um, and so, um, so I'm working in this dishwasher room, and it's a horrible place to be. I don't know how many of you have ever worked in a dishwasher room at a restaurant. It's like, it's hot, it's muggy, it's dirty, and you're just like, it's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a rough place to be. Um, and so what can start to happen is you're like, man, I'm like working so hard here. Nobody in this whole place is working as hard as I am. 
Right? I'm the only one who's working this hard. And you just start to let your world closes in, and it's just you and this plate of mashed potatoes that looks really good. Um, that's it. And then all of a sudden, like, you, you realize, like, oh, you step out of the dishwasher room and realize there, there's, like, there's this whole sort of network of people who, they're not doing what you're doing, but they're doing what they're doing, and it's all making this thing work. You're a part of it together. That's how the kingdom of God works. Like, so, so we don't allow ourselves to get in the place where it's just like, it's all me, and I'm the only one who's sacrificing, and I'm the only one who's giving. You might be the only one who's doing that thing at that place at that time, but you are a part of 7,000 people, this abundance of people who are faithful to God right around you and around the world, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. So God essentially tells Elijah, uh, so I got work for you to do. Get over yourself. Uh, let's get some stuff done. Um, verse 19. Um, so Elijah went, he was, he was faithful, he, he went and he found Elisha. This is the first, the first person he comes to is Elisha, the son. By the way, do you get the names Elijah, Elisha, confused? The J comes before S, so Elijah comes before Elisha. Um, so he goes, Elijah went there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, cool dude, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Katya. Uh, it's kind of a, it's what I picture. Katya. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I don't know where that came from. But so El- Elisha's out, out in the field, and apparently like he's a fairly successful farmer, like 12 yoke of oxen, and he's, he himself is plowing with this 12th um, this sort of pair of oxen. And, and Elijah the prophet comes up to him and takes his cloak. And the cloak was a symbol of prophetic authority. It was a symbol of God's anointing on his life to do the things that he had called him to do. And one of Elijah's roles was to raise people up, to be leaders. And so Elijah takes this cloak, because God had told him he is going to be the one who comes after you, and you're going to invest in him, pour into his life. Elijah takes his cloak off, and he throws it around Elisha. And everybody knows what this means. Elisha knows what this means. This means I've been called out. Like, I've been called out for a purpose here. And it's this, this beautiful moment of like sort of handing the baton, passing the baton of leadership to the next generation. Um, and there's a symbol of anointing. Anointing isn't a word we use very often. Um, we, we just don't use it in our English language very much. But anointing was a powerful symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, what would happen, so God says, hey, I want you to anoint this man to be king. I want you to anoint Jehu to be king. I want you to anoint Elisha. So what would happen in the Old Testament is specific people were anointed. That was a symbol of God's spirit coming on this person and giving them the power to be faithful to what God had asked them to do. Do you know who was anointed in the Old Testament? Not everybody. Not everybody had the anointing of God. It was, it was special people for special purposes at special times and special places. Kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Judges were anointed. Special people, special purposes, spe- special places and times. Um, and so that's what Elijah was doing. He was anointing these kings, anointing Elisha. But let's talk about this for a second. Do you know who's anointed in the New Testament? Everybody. Every person who has surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ and who has opened themselves up to God's Spirit at work in their life is anointed by God to fulfill His purpose in their lives. You can raise your hands now. 
I, I'm anointed. Uh, this, is a, this is an amazing reality. Do you know today is Pentecost Sunday? So today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day we look back and we celebrate the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit, God's ongoing presence at work in the world that gave birth to the church and who empowered normal men and women, normal disciples, to carry on God's mission in the world. This is seven Sundays after the resurrection when we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. And we look back to Acts chapter 2 when God's Spirit was poured out on the first disciples and the church was born and the movement began to grow. And it started to grow because special people were no longer anointed. Everybody was anointed. And it was ordinary people just like us recognizing that, that God's Spirit is at work in my life and is going to empower me to do what God has asked me to do and living out of that anointing. You, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, are anointed by God's Spirit to be faithful to what God has asked you to do. This is how God's mission gets done in the world. It's it's by people just like us living in to this calling, to this amazing anointing. So, this is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament as it relates to anointing. So uh, Elisha, he's interrupted. The cloak gets thrown over him. He's anointed. He's called out. And um, I think it's worth thinking about, like just for a second, what would have happened if Elijah hadn't been faithful to go to Elisha? What if he had stayed in his cave? How long would Elisha have stayed there plowing his field? Just, just kind of kept doing the same old thing. Now, there's anything wrong with that? But he never would have received maybe this, this sort of calling to say like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm called to do this thing. And you can go through and you can read the, the rest of 1 Kings. You can read into 2 Kings. And you can read about the ministry of Elisha and how he led God's people in some amazing ways. And it was because this one man, Elijah, stepped out of his cave, stepped out of his like despair, and was faithful to just call him out. Um... It's crazy to think, what would have happened in your life if whoever was Elijah to you hadn't invested in you, hadn't called you out, hadn't, you know, seen you and cared enough about you to say, hey, like, you have these gifts, like, and and given them their lives away. Do you know who was Elijah to you? Could you, like, bring that person to mind? Who, Who loved you, taught you about Jesus, who kind of led you in the faith? Do you have that person in mind? Would you like, if they're still alive, would you just, like, what would happen if this afternoon, if you said thank you, just recognize this person, they did it intentionally, they gave of their time, they, they loved you, and, uh, and you just said thank you, you wrote them a card, or you sent them an email, or called them up, I think that'd be awesome. But not only that, but who is Elisha to you? Who is that person who's plowing the field right now, and God is nudging you to just come alongside them, and to just sort of tap them on the shoulder, and, and to help them recognize that God has a calling on their life. I, I believe that this is God's plan, again, for how his mission gets done, is that ordinary people recognize God has called us to do this, to invest our lives in other people, to transmit the faith to those people to whom we have been sent. Who is Elisha in your life? And Elisha's all in. I love this. Verse uh, 20 and 21. So then Elisha left, his, left the oxen, And he ran after Elijah. He said, hey, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come back to you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? He's like, I I took you away before you could honor your mom and dad. Verse 21, so Elisha left him 
and went back. And he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and burnt the plowing equipment to cook the meat and he gave it to the people. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. There is no putting your hand to the plow and looking back when you have burned the plow. Right? Elisha is all in this thing. It's beautiful. He has a neighborhood party to celebrate. He has a barbecue. He slaughters the oxen and he, he burns his, his, hopefully it was his plow, uh, burns the plow to cook the meat and he's just like, let's celebrate. Let's call the neighbors in and have a neighborhood barbecue to celebrate what God is up to. It's just really cool deal. But there is no turning back for Elisha. I mean, it, he is all in to this. What does that look like in our lives? See, some of us, God says, oh, I want you to stop plowing and I want you to start doing this. Like there's this dramatic burn the plow kind of moment. And some of us have had that or will have it as God says, no, 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 you were doing this. Now you're doing this. And Elisha's all in and he sets a precedent for us to say, I'm all in. But for some of us, God says, no, no, no I want you to keep plowing. I just want you to do it differently. I want you, to, want you to, to do this job and do it well, but I want you to do it differently. And so there's some discernment that happens, but Elisha is all into this. This is God's plan, is that ordinary people filled with the Spirit would, for us in the New Testament, we would, we would replicate Jesus in our lives. We would follow Jesus, pattern our lives after Jesus, and then we would just tap others on the shoulder and say, hey, would you, would you follow Jesus with me? To be disciples who make disciples. This is a vision for the church. Um, that we all have people who have been Elijah to us, and we have people who uh, we are called to be Elijah to. A um, couple, couple of months ago, well, we unrolled at the beginning of the year this, this vision, uh, replicate Jesus, being disciples who make disciples. And as we kind of unpack that, to say this is like, this is God's plan. Uh, this is what the New Testament is all about. Go make disciples. That every believer... Um, is, is given this sort of mandate to go and make more disciples of Jesus. Next slide shows this assessment that we did. Do you remember that a couple of months ago when we did that self-assessment to say, how are we doing at this? Um, and, and the next slide shows like what we talked about is this, like the spiritual pathway of how we mature. And we all sort of mature in the same, not at the same amount of time, but we all mature through the same steps that we all go from spiritual death to spiritual life. The moment we're born again, we surrender our lives to Jesus. But we're not born again into the kingdom of God as adults. Uh, we're born as infants. We're born as people who have to learn what the world is like. We, nobody expects an infant to carry their own weight. You don't expect an infant to do that. What do you expect them to do? Be loved, cared for, nurtured. They need people around them who are just going to pick them up when they fall and help them explore the world. That's what the church needs to do. We have spiritual infants, and so we have parents who invest in them. We grow to spiritual adolescence, and spiritual adolescents know a lot. Like, they know lots of stuff. Adolescents tend to know lots of things, and the problem with adolescence is oftentimes the life experience doesn't quite match up to the knowledge. So there's this maturity gap, and so we've all been there. We've all experienced that, and, and so adolescents need, again, need people to come along with them, walk with them toward maturity, to adulthood. Spiritual adults, they know that they're called. They know they have gifts. They, they're serving. They're uh, invested in the kingdom of God. They're passionate about the church. That's what spiritual adults are, and it's a beautiful thing. And then the last one is spiritual parents. The, the, God's hope is that every one of us lands at spiritual parenthood. That, that we all, God's plan is that we have people who we are pouring our lives into intentionally to make more disciples. Um, 
So the next slide shows the results of the survey. So this is just kind of, a, again, nothing scientific. It was a self-assessment. And we just wanted to sort of unpack it, just show you. Here's, here's where we as a campus, where we said we are. Um, and I apologize. There's supposed to be like this grid here. You can't see it super well. But there are these sort of lines. You like my nice straight lines right here? Just look at the dot real quickly. Just follow the dot. Um, so you see like um, there's... The, the, our, our spiritual sort of assessment is really tilted this direction towards spiritual adults and adolescents. Not a lot of infants, not a lot of parents. Okay, so that's where we are. And then so here are the numbers over here. About 7% of us say we're spiritual infants. We're just figuring out life with God. What does that look like? Over a quarter of us are spiritual adolescents. Over half of us, 52% are adults, and 14.3% are parents. So 14.3% of us said, right now, I am actively giving my life away to somebody else, discipling somebody else. Not I could be, but I'm doing that right now. So this would be a great thing to reflect on and to have conversation about, like as a family, around the dinner table, whatever that looks like. But one of the things I'd love to invite you to pray about and to think about is this number right here. Spiritual adults. Many of us, over half of us probably in this room, are in this place, 52%, where we are spiritually mature, at least most of the time. We, uh, we know we have gifts. We're using those gifts. We're serving. I mean, we are, we are, we're washing the dishes. We're doing the stuff. But we're not actively giving our lives away to make disciples. We don't have somebody we're investing in. So what would it look like if, like, maybe over the next three months, over the summer, what if 5% of us took a step and said, I believe God is sending me to somebody or God has sent somebody to me to pour my life into, to just to love them, to walk with them, to teach them about faith. What would happen if 5% of us did that? Do you know what's separating adults from parents? A decision. That's it. The giftedness is already there, already equipped, already sort of have everything they need. The only thing that's separating adults from parents is a decision to say, I, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take a step. And so pray with me. Uh, what would it look like if 5% of us did that? I think if this, number, if this number increased to like, you know, 20%, you know, I think this number would increase as well. I think new people would, be, would also be coming to faith and experiencing life with God for the first time. Uh, next slide shows... Again, just, uh, we've been talking about up, in, and out. These, this is how we grow spiritually. Uh, we move these three directions. Uh, in, in community with others. Out, in mission. And up, in relationship with God. So here's how we assessed ourselves. Out of four, uh, like four was like, man, I rocked this thing. One was, uh, this doesn't work so well for me. In was our highest. Community, loving each other, was a three. Out, living on mission was 2.5. And living up, in a kind of meaningful connection with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was 2.6. So um, where, if you remember kind of where you are on that, um, what, what's the next step for you? So the next slide just shows some real simple ways of taking some next steps. And we have an app if you haven't downloaded the app yet. It's just called um, Replicate Jesus. You can find it on, on uh, if you have an Android device, sorry, but you can find it on the Play Store. Um, or you can find it on, uh, what's the iTunes one? It's iTunes, right? Something like that. I don't remember. So, um, anyhow, you can find tons of practices to just say, I'm going to continue to take next steps in my faith. So, that's, that's where we are as a church, living into this vision to be disciples who make disciples. Who, who has been Elijah to you? Who's been Elijah in your life? 
Bless them. Thank them. And who is God calling you to love, to invest? Who's Elisha in your life? God, we thank you that we are surrounded by 7,000 men and women. That's an abundance of people who love you, who are faithful to you, who are serving you. God, uh, many of them we don't see, we'll never meet, and yet we're included in what you're doing. And we trust that your spirit is at work all over the world, all over the planet, um, just building your kingdom. And God, we are, in our small acts of faithfulness, we're a part of it. And so God, um, if we are um, at a place where we can't see where we can't see you at work, where we can't hear the voice of your spirit, God, we just invite you to, to just, like you did with Elijah, just force us to bump into people, to see them. Give us meaningful work to do. Help us to use our gifts. And God, um, we pray that you would bring people into our lives that we could love, we could invest in, to be disciples who make more disciples of yours. We pray this in Jesus' name.